All right, we are over halfway through our journey through Genesis 1 through 11. It's been a couple of months. So, uh, we're answering the question, is there any hope for this world? And we're going to see that there is plenty of hope for this world, just as God has before judged this world, and so in the future he will judge it again, uh, but he does not make a complete destruction. He does not go for broke, but he saves what can be saved. We are in the midst of the Toledot of Noah, which is the largest genealogical section in uh, Genesis 1 through 11. It covers almost four chapters of our 11 chapters with the story of Noah. And by way of reminder, in our dispensation, we are in the second dispensation, dispensation of conscience, where man is guided uh, to do all known good and to avoid all known bad. He has failed to do so, and the entire earth has become wicked. And so God is bringing a divine judgment, and that judgment, in fact, we are right on the heels of it this morning. Uh, we will see it actually begin to take place next week. That is the flood of Noah's day. But God offers grace through judgment. He does not judge those whom he has made righteous. And so God has Noah build an ark, and he keeps him safe on that ark, and he brings him through the judgment. And so this morning as we start Genesis 7, we look at the second time that God is going to speak to Noah that is recorded for us in this record. And we want to keep this main point forefront in our minds as we go through this morning's passage, that God does judge sin and evil. He does not let it go unchecked. He saves those who place their trust in him, and we are safe in the ark of his salvation. Just as Noah was made safe in the ark, so we are made safe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we start this morning with the second of four statements that God gives to Noah. Two are before the flood and two are after the flood. This is the last time he will speak with Noah before the flood begins. He is going to give him the encouragement that he needs to sustain him through that time, because as we'll see when we get to chapter 8, there is a period of silence while Noah is in the ark. And he's in the ark for over a year. That is a long time to trust in the words of God. Probably a lot longer than Adam and Eve trusted in the words of God before they sinned. So Noah can definitely be described in his character as one who is trusting of God. So we look at these speech acts and we see, once again, the Lord is speaking to Noah. He spoke to Noah back in Genesis 6, chapter, or verse 11 through 22, and he gave a threat to destroy the earth. God observed the corruption on the earth, made a divine judgment over the earth, one that he is qualified to make that the earth is not able to be saved without wiping it clean first. God tells Noah how he is going to fix this problem. He divulges 
to Noah his plan. He doesn't keep it a secret. He lets Noah know what he plans to do, and then he tells Noah how he plans to protect him. And this was about 100 years before the flood. Could have been as much as 120 years, but probably closer to 100 years before the flood that God said this to Noah. So for 100 years, Noah was building the ark, as God commanded him to do. And he had finished by this second time that God speaks to him. Because this second time God speaks, and he may have spoken to him in between, but this is the second time it's recorded for us. This second time the ark is complete because God commands him to come into the ark. It's time to get on the ark. And he is not going to speak with Noah again until it is time for him to come out of the ark. This is a long time, as we'll see soon, to simply rest in God's finished work. In this declaration of deliverance that God gives Noah, he invites not only Noah, but Noah's family onto the ark as well. In Noah's faithfulness and obedience to God's command to build an ark, God prepared a means by which not only Noah, but his entire family could be saved from judgment. God will also prepare Noah for fellowship with him after the flood. We'll see that before the flood even takes place, God is already preparing for the new world after it. He's doing the same with us today in the church. He is already preparing for the world to come. God is going to encourage Noah with detail that Noah doesn't necessarily need to know, but that is going to be helpful for him as he sees these prophecies take place to keep his mind on the prophecy's end. God's going to give him a prophecy about seven days. He's going to give him a prophecy about 40 days. And then there's going to be silence for a year. Noah can look back at the fulfillment of that seven-day prophecy and that 40-day prophecy and be encouraged that God is going to bring him through the flood. And so Noah's response is one of faithfulness. Again, the command to come out. And then once he comes out, God will promise Noah that he will not destroy the earth again by means of a flood. So these are the four speech acts of God to Noah recorded by Moses. But let's dig a little bit deeper into this command that he gives Noah to enter the ark. Now, we use the NASB, and I'm not a huge fan of the way the NASB translates this word, but it's not a bad translation. It doesn't quite capture what this word means, though. It has this sense of bringing in, coming in, gathering in. He is inside the ark, beckoning Noah to come in. This isn't an enter where God is standing aloof. This is an enter into the sanctuary that God has prepared. This is the same word used when Aaron enters into the tabernacle. God is in the tabernacle. His presence is manifest to Israel in the Holy of Holies. And so when Aaron is told to come in, he enters into God's presence. This is what Noah is doing. He is entering in because God is on the inside. 
in Numbers 14. And remember, this period in Numbers, uh, these, these uh, first generation of Israelites going into the second generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt, those were the ones who received the Genesis record. Those are the ones for whom Genesis was written. They are the original audience. And so this event in Numbers 14 has probably already happened by the time they receive the text of Genesis. They will have uh, life applications to draw from Noah's uh, record. So here in Numbers 14, verse 22, it says, Surely all men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, this disobedient generation that has not rested in faith, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall they, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it, but my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. This is that same verb. It's not an incredibly common verb, but it is all over the place in Numbers where God is beckoning his people to fellowship with him. Numbers 14.30, Surely I shall not, or surely you shall not, come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. God's command to Israel to come into the land was because he was present in the land. He was bringing them into his rest, into the promised land, a land through which they would be cultivated as a nation to bring about the salvation of the world through the Savior. The same is true of Noah. He is being beckoned into this ark by which God will preserve humankind so that the Savior can be born and redeem mankind. God is present in the ark as he was present in the land of Israel. In Numbers 20, verses 24, we see that Aaron as well was barred from entering into the land. Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command to the waters are at the waters of Meribah. So this idea of entering into the ark is one of God beckoning him to come into the fold where he already exists, and God is the one who is bringing him in. And why Noah, of all people? Once again, it is stated, this is the third statement to this effect in just two short chapters. Because Noah has been seen to be righteous in his generation. Now this word alone isn't in the Hebrew text here. It's in the Hebrew text back in Genesis 6-9. And so the translator has drawn it forward here. Uh, not, something, uh, not something that's bad practice necessarily, but uh, at this point it may be that his entire family is saved. If not, they've got seven days to get right with the Lord, to be in fellowship with him, to be saved from this judgment. 
that could be. But I think it is much better to leave that word alone out of here, because after a hundred years, I think that family, which God foresaw would come to saving faith, has come to saving faith. Those 100 years of watching their father and his faithfulness to the Lord, his continued trust in the Lord, has had an effect on them. See, God has no grandchildren. No one is saved by the obedience of another. No one is saved by their own obedience, except the obedience to the command to believe. That is the only obedience which saves. And so at this point, all eight members of the household of Noah have placed their faith in the God who spoke to Noah, the God of their fathers, the God who made a promise to restore mankind through the seed of the woman. They have placed their faith in him, and so they will be gathered into the ark together with Noah. In Genesis 6-9, we see that Noah's righteousness came from God's favor, which was the first time in Genesis and the first time in Scripture where the word for grace is used. Hen is that Hebrew word, and it becomes a major theme throughout all of Scripture because grace is the instrument by which God saves. So God, in his graciousness, has justified Noah, and that justification made Noah righteous. The text does not fully explain here how Noah became righteous. It was not by Noah's good works that made him righteous, but by his simple act of faith. He alone in his generation at that time had put his faith in God and was in fellowship with God, continuing to walk with him so he was guiltless, blameless in his time. He had saving faith and he had continuing faith. He was in fellowship with God. Hebrews 11.7 gives us the other side of the coin, not the side that God did towards Noah, but the side that no, how Noah responded to God. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. How did Noah achieve such righteousness? He achieved it on the basis of that future sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And how did he receive that future righteousness but by faith? It was faith which saved Noah spiritually. And his spiritual salvation, as it continued in faith, was able to save him physically from judgment. Made mention a couple of weeks ago that contrary to a popular thought, there were probably, or possibly at least, many people spiritually saved when Noah was saved physically. But none of them were walking with the Lord, and that was the issue. You see, continued faith keeps us from the judgment of God. Believers, when they are out of fellowship, can come under the judgment of God, the chastisement of God. And it's in order to draw them back into fellowship. Or if they have become so reprobate, to keep them from a furthered life of sin, to draw them home to avoid loss of further reward. But here in Psalm 18, we see how grace and faith, or grace and blamelessness, 
righteousness works together. This is a psalm of David after he had been saved from Saul by God. He says, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. This is the kind of faith that makes one a man after God's own heart. It's not the good works of that man, but the continued faith of that man. Even when David sinned, he turned to God. Noah was not a sinless man. No man but Jesus Christ was ever a sinless man. But Noah was a man who put his hope of salvation in God so that his sins were not counted to his account. Now God is going to prepare Noah for life after the ark. Before judgment has even begun, he is preparing Noah for the end of that judgment. And so he commands him to take with him clean animals. Now he's already given him a command to take all animals two by two, but now he is giving him further revelation, progressive revelation. Not all is revealed at one time, but it is revealed at the time it is needed. Here, as there are seven days, we will find, left to go, God gives Noah a bit more of the puzzle. He gives him what he needs to know at this point, and that is that he shall take of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, those will just be twos, two by two, a male and his female. Now, this will be true of the birds as well, that he'll take seven of those, the clean birds. But that's in the next verse. What does it mean by clean animals? How would Noah know what a clean animal is? Now, it is possible, although I'm not convinced of this, that Noah didn't know what a clean animal was at that time. Because clean animals have to do with what animals can be eaten. Noah was not eating animals at this time. If he was, he wouldn't be in fellowship with God because he was commanded not to do that. But in Genesis 9, God is going to give Noah animals to eat. So if God is uh, looking forward, he obviously has some way of communicating to Noah what those clean animals are, even if Noah doesn't know why he's bringing clean animals. It says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. This God says after he gets off the ark. He says, I give all to you in the same way that I gave the green plant. So Noah, up until the flood, was to eat only green plants like the rest of mankind. We don't know if the rest of mankind was obedient to that command or if they had begun to eat animals before the flood. But if they did, that was against the righteousness of God. After the flood, however, it is permitted, but they are only permitted to eat clean animals. But here, actually, uh, during the law, they will only be permitted to eat clean animals. And that is why I think it may have more to do with, with the sacrifices that Noah is going to be offering after the flood, but we'll get there in a second. What were those clean animals? 
We don't know exactly what the clean animals were for Noah. Uh, I'm not a uh, biologist, as I told you a couple of weeks ago. But I think some of these animals may have a similar ancestor. So I don't know if these were all on the ark or not, or if it was an ancestor of all of these animals on the ark. But Deuteronomy 14 lists 10 different animals which would have been on the ark, at least in an archetypal ancestor. And that is the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, wild goat, ibex, antelope, and mountain sheep. In Leviticus, the explanation for the clean animals is that they are able to be eaten by Israel. However, they also have to do with sacrifice. Clean animals are acceptable to God as sacrifice. Unclean animals are not. In Genesis 4, 3 through 5, we saw that Abel brought from the firstlings of his flock. Now, the issue with Cain and Abel was not that Abel brought a clean offering and Cain brought a, an unclean offering, but that Abel brought a blood offering and Cain... Did I say that right? Abel brought a blood offering, but Cain did not. Cain brought a grain offering. He did not understand the substitutionary atonement that would be required for the taking away of sin. He was not putting his faith in the future promise of God. But we still see that Abel did bring firstlings of his flock. And if you remember back about six months, this word for flock only applies to sheep and goats. This is a word exclusively used for sheep and goat. After the flood, Genesis 8, verses 20 through 21, we'll see that Noah builds an altar. Once he is off the ark, he builds an altar to the Lord and he takes from the clean animals of every clean bird and he offers burnt offerings on the altar. God is preparing him, both in his food source and in his fellowship, for life after the ark. And so he is not bringing just two of all these kinds of animals, but he is bringing seven of these clean animals. This phrase seven in the Hebrew is literally seven, twice, seven, seven. This is not seven sets of seven, but seven and seven by the twos, male and female. Seven males, seven females. Some do want to say that this is seven pairs so that there would be, or seven total so that there would be three pairs and an extra. There does not seem to be much textual evidence for this. It seems to be trying to fit um, to, fit to a preconceived notion. Um, I won't, I won't dive into that too much. But uh, the text seems to say that it is seven males, seven females, by pairs, as compared to the single pair of males and females for other animals. Uh, part of the reason for wanting it to be just seven individuals, because then comparing that to Deuteronomy, where there are ten different kinds of clean animals, which again, might not have been the archetype, there would be then 70 clean animals on the ark. And people like that round number, 70. Um, where God is not uh, using numbers as a typology, I try not to add it into the text. 
to the best of my ability. But he is bringing them male and female so that they can populate, of course. But notice that Noah is going to take from every clean animal and of every clean bird. If he did this immediately after getting off the ark, this would drastically decrease the population of clean animals in the new world. God is preparing not only for the sacrifice, but to have a clean genome coming out of these animals to avoid the possibility of genetic mutations in these clean animals, and also so that there will be plenty. There will be enough to eat. There will be enough for the sacrificial fellowship of those who come off the ark. God does have a purpose statement for this, and here we see the birds included. The birds of the sky by sevens, that is seven and seven, male and females. His purpose is to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. Now this is complementary to his statement that he would destroy all life from the earth. He is going to destroy all life from the earth, but that which is on the ark is for the purpose of not making a complete destruction. He is saving what is savable. In 6.17, he said he is going to destroy all flesh. That which has the breath of life, he's going to destroy it from under heaven. All that is on the earth shall perish. It is only going to be that microcosm, that ark by which God saves. We're not unfamiliar with a single method of salvation. Genesis 6.18 also promises a covenant with Noah when he gets off the ark. God says he will establish his covenant with him and with his family and with every living thing of all flesh. This is a universal covenant, not just universal among mankind, but universal among all of creation. The purpose for Noah bringing these animals, even in God's first statement, was to keep them alive, to keep them alive with Noah, not for Noah to do the work of keeping them alive, but God is going to protect them in the same way he is protecting Noah on the ark. And I think this is what Paul is explaining in Romans 8. Verse 20, when he says that the creation was subject to futility. See, all of creation was affected by man's sin. Sin doesn't just affect the one doing it, but it affects all things. It corrupts all things. When man is placed in control or in charge of all of creation, then all that which is subject to him also is corrupted by him. And so all of this corrupt earth could be just forsaken. God could redeem man through Christ. But if he subjects the rest of creation together with man, then when man is redeemed, creation becomes redeemable with him through Jesus Christ. God is not just abandoning all things here. He is preserving his creation. What looks like destruction is actually protection. So he says, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God subjected the rest of creation to be part of this judgment in hope that the creation itself 
also will be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. God washed the earth clean in Noah's day. He is going to burn the earth clean in that future day. But notice he is not making a complete destruction of the earth, even still. It will be a more perfect purification even still. All that is corrupt will be burned from its surface. But the new heavens and the new earth does not come yet. Why? Because man was unsuccessful on this earth. And it was God's perfect purpose for man to rule over this creation. And so if man, if a man, if the man does not rule over this creation, then God has been unsuccessful in his creation. Satan has won. All of creation was subject to futility so that it might be saved, so that God could be successful in this creation. He has to be successful in the same realm in which he was seemingly defeated, and he will have the ultimate victory when Jesus Christ rules over this earth in body from Jerusalem. But notice these last verses, verse 4 and verse 5, where God divulges to Noah some of his plan. This is taken a little out of context, Deuteronomy 8.3, but it reminded me of this verse, where Israel is wandering in the wilderness. They are testing God's patience again and again. And what does God say to them? He says he humbled them. He let them be hungry. He fed them with manna, which they did not know, nor did their fathers know, so that he might make them understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now God made Noah bring food to sustain his body and to sustain the animals on the ark. Surely he had him bring enough food. But you know, it wasn't just having all of his physical needs taken care of on the ark that preserved him. It was having his spiritual needs taken care of on the ark. Imagine a year and 17 days floating in the middle of nowhere, the rest of the world destroyed, and God is silent. You need some sort of pattern to hold on to. You need to be able to trust the one who has made a promise to you. Now Noah becomes an archetypal promise because he is one of the first. One of the first who received such prophecies from God as give specific timelines. But God does tell us at times great detail about his promises. For example, when he makes the covenant with Abraham, that great Abrahamic covenant. As part of that covenant, he tells him that his descendants are going to be sojourners in a foreign land. They will be subject to an evil nation. And he gives him a time limit as well. He says it's going to be for 400 years. And sure enough, Israel was subject to Israel for four or to uh, Egypt 
for 400 years, just as God said. A literal prophecy fulfilled literally. Jeremiah 29.10, when Israel is about to be subject to Babylon, God tells them, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. God puts a time limit on that captivity in Babylon. And Daniel holds on to that. Daniel remembers this prophecy of Jeremiah. He probably reads it multiple times for encouragement as he is in the land of Babylon. And when that 70 years comes to an end, Daniel prays the prayer that uh, the prayer of Israel, of repentance, which all of Israel will pray at the end of the tribulation period. But that's what Daniel thought it was. He thought this was the end. He thought the messianic kingdom was about to be established. God came and gave him further revelation. Now, if I were Daniel, this might have been a little disappointing because this is going to be a long time to wait. God prophesies 400 and, what is that, 69 years, if I'm doing that right. He prophesies almost 500 years remaining before the Messiah. He says, no, it's not time for the Messianic kingdom yet. But rather, the temple is going to be rebuilt. That's going to take 49 years. And then from the completion of the temple to the arrival of the Messiah is going to be another 434 years. Anyone want to guess how that prophecy was fulfilled? Literally. To the year. Probably to the day or to the hour. I'm not confident enough in my own mathematics to, uh, to do that. Other people say it's, it's to the very day. I'm inclined to believe them because that's how God fulfills prophecy. There is still a week left of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, a literal seven years to finish God's prophetic timeline. I'm inclined to believe that those are a literal seven years. And you know, that is going to be a comfort to Israel, who will be subject to more anti-Semitism, more persecution than they will have ever experienced in history. Having God's promise that this will be punctuated by his return, and it will not be allowed to just continue forever, that will be a great encouragement. In fact, for half of that time, they are going to be hiding in the wilderness, taken care of by God, just as they were in the wilderness. For three and a half years, for 42 months, God gives it in uh, so many different ways, it's hard to fudge the numbers. He calls it times, time, and half a time, a double, a single, and a half, three and a half. He calls it 42 months. He calls it 1260 days. Israel is going to have every reason to depend on God's promises because he has never been anything but faithful. And that will sustain them. In Revelation 26, it says, The woman, that is Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Just as a bit of an aside, if 
God uses numbers literally, if he fulfills his prophecies literally, then why should we be anything but confident in God's promise that we will reign with him for a thousand years? This is a literal thousand years. In fact, he tells us the length of the tribulation three different ways, multiple times, but three different ways. He could not be more clear. There is no possible way for him to be clearer how long the millennial kingdom will last. Six different times, he says, a thousand years. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were complete. After these things, he must be released for a short time. See, John does know how to distinguish between a short time and a long time. He knows how to be unspecific when there is no specificity needed. He knows how to be specific when he means to be specific. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were complete. When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison. I'm inclined to believe him. I think it will be a thousand years. He could not have made it any more literal. Second Peter 1.19 gives us God's principle for prophecy. So that we have the prophetic word made more sure. We have eyewitnesses to those who have seen God's prophecies come to pass. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Prophecy is not a scary thing. Prophecy is the church's greatest comfort. We know that God puts an end to pain and suffering. But he is gracious and allows many to come to faith in the meantime. And those who find themselves in the day of the Lord will have comfort, knowing that it will come to an end and that his wrath will not come against them, so long as their faith has been placed in him. We are not promised to have no pain. In fact, we are enemies of the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us Satan is the ruler of this world. Two different times in 1 John, we are told that Satan rules over this world. It's his world. We are his enemies, and so he does all that he can to make our lives miserable. But we don't need to be miserable through that. Even through persecution, we have hope. And that's something they don't have. Like, or, first, or First Thessalonians 4, uh, 18, actually 4, like 14 through 18, tells us about our future hope of resurrection, our future hope of the rapture. First Thessalonians 5, 19 tells us that we are going to be spared from wrath. That is from God's wrath. But we're not spared from Satan's wrath. This is his world. We're living in it. But God will carry us through it. All right. These seven days that God tells Noah, these seven days where Noah is supposed to be in the ark, what were they for? Were they in addition to God's 120-year prophecy given back in chapter 6? 
They may have been, it may have just been seven days before that 120 year span came to an end. God says, all right, it's time to get in the ark. We're not really told. But there is a uh, rabbinic tradition that these seven days were for the morning of Methuselah. That may very well have been. Methuselah died the very year of the global flood in uh, two, or 2348 BC, 2348 BC. Methuselah died, and in the same year, the flood came. It may have been seven days before the flood that Methuselah died, and seven days were set aside for mourning. We're not without that uh, kind of pattern. I thought I had it in here. Genesis 50. In Genesis 50, I lost my slide for it. Um, Joseph mourns Jacob for seven days. This is a pattern in Jewish history. Mourning lasts a seven-day period. It's possible that that was already established before the flood, that for seven days, God allowed Noah to mourn Methuselah. Regardless, that mourning was done on the ark. It was not done outside of the salvation. It was done inside of it. Oh, I just didn't retitle this slide. This is Genesis 50.10, not 7.10 through 12. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful, sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days mourning for his father. And after those seven days, God tells him he will send rain on the earth. Now, Noah would probably know what God meant by this because language is meant to be understandable. God knows how to communicate to the very creatures that he gave language for the purpose of communicating with them. But Noah had probably never seen this before. I bet you the word was descriptive in the language Noah spoke, which could have been Hebrew. The language was descriptive enough that Noah understood what God meant when he said rain would come in seven days. But there had never before been rain because it was not part of the pre-flood creation. In Genesis 2.5, it says, No shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. How was the ground watered? A mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Now when we get to, uh, I think it's next week, and we'll see the fountains of the great deep burst open. This is probably the explanation for the thermal pools that would have watered the earth. Those no longer exist. The earth is now watered by rain. Our very creation has changed. It has adapted by God's declaration, by God's judgment to this new world. And this rain is going to last for 40 days and 40 nights. Once again, another prophecy that Noah, at the very beginning of the flood, is going to be able to see come to pass and progressively be able to trust God even more in his word. Here are the dates that these probably took place. The year might be off by a few. 
but the days are actually specified for us in Scripture. Hopefully you guys can see this. In the second month, in the tenth day of the year 2348 BC, that was the day that Noah was told to enter the ark. In the second month of the 17th day, the rain begins. This is told to us explicitly in the text of the scripture. We'll see that next week. In three or third month, 27th day, the rain will stop. These two months, from the second, uh, second month, the 10th day, to the third month, the 27th day, Noah sees two prophecies that God made fulfilled. There's going to be silence then for about a year. He is going to hold on to those fulfilled promises to sustain him through the rest of that time. The rain is going to stop. The ark is going to touch ground four months after that. Mountain peaks will become visible three months after that. He's going to send out a raven and two different doves over the course of two weeks. He's uh, trying to uh, get a little bit of an answer. We'll look at that in a few weeks. But on the first day, the first month of the new year, 2347 BC, the earth is dry. Noah is still going to wait another month and 27 days before God speaks again and tells him to exit the ark. Notice, Noah observed the dry earth on 1-1. He did not exit the ark until God said, exit the ark on 227. Noah is not making his own estimations at this point. I think he's seen enough to trust God. He is going to wait for God's estimation to tell him, yes, it's time. Now this number 40 pops up quite a bit. And it's particularly interesting to us when it has to do with the nation in the generation that received Genesis. Because they're going to see this number 40 and it's going to stand out like a sore thumb to them because they are probably smack dab in the middle of their 40 years. And what were these 40 years for? Numbers 14.33 says, Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for the unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness, the first generation which was unfaithful to God. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. This is for testing. This is for purification. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 2, were given a purpose statement for these 40 years. It's not just a punishment, but God had some purposes in Israel. It says, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to you, to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. They needed a bit more time to ruminate in God's promises, to ruminate in God's faithfulness towards them but also so that he might humble them, that he might test them, and to know what was in their hearts. Now, I don't really like this word knowing. In the Hebrew, it's better, I think, showing. He is proving what is in their hearts. God is not curious and wanting to know. He needs them to understand what is in their hearts. 
to show what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. They need to understand that just because they are saved does not mean they are perfect. Does not mean, great, we get a blank check from God, we get to go do life our way. Forget him, thanks for saving us. No, they live in faithfulness with him. They are to be obedient to his commandments. They need to be humble in order to do that. We need to be humble in order to follow him. We aren't saved, and then we say toodaloo until it's time to be raptured or resurrected. No, we spend our lives seeking the will of God, resting in his finished work, trusting that what he says will come to pass will come to pass just as what he had told those before will come to pass has come to pass. One more observation here. There's plenty of places that 40 pops up in a sense of testing. But here is the final test. And it's not given to Israel, but it's given to a man who stands in Israel's place. A man who, just as he stands in Adam's place and does what Adam could not do, stands in Israel's place and does what Israel could not do. In Mark 1, 10 through 13, about the baptism and temptation of Christ. It says, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending on him and a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Israel is called God's son in Exodus. He has brought his son out of Egypt. They were disobedient to him. They were not well pleasing to him. Jesus is, and Jesus proves this. Standing in the place of Israel, he is tested for 40 days in the wilderness. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And he was absolutely faithful to God in all that time. He even quotes to Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of the Lord. He was sustained by God's promises to him, just as Israel should have been, just as Noah was. Now in this statement, once again, the translator has smoothed it over a bit. He says, I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made, now, up until this point, God does say living thing, living thing, that nefesh haya, that living thing in which is the breath of life. But this word is actually different in the Hebrew. It's not the same, nefesh haya. This is talking about autonomous, free-moving, or erect things. This is including those things like animals and man specifically. Not just, or, uh, not including perhaps the fish. He is talking about a different group of things. This is only used three times, twice in the context of what God destroys in the flood. He uh, lays flat those things which stood up. But here in Deuteronomy 11, we see that same thing used in the context of the rebellion of Korah. It says, what he did to Dathan, Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, when the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them. 
Those living things that followed them had the moral capacity to follow them. If not the moral capacity, the, uh, the autonomy of body to do so. I don't think this uh, Genesis 7-4 is talking about all things with life, but all things with the ability to move on their own. Those things which had the ability to move into the ark, the animals and the people. Not a big difference. I don't think it's a problem that the NASB has translated it this way. It smooths it over. Um, it means essentially the same thing, but there is a different flavor to that. But notice he is destroying all the living things that he has made. He makes this statement whenever he says he is going to destroy. These are the things that I have made. They have become corrupt. I am going to destroy them. And he has every right to do so. In Revelation 4.11, when it comes to the final judgment, we see that all of heaven erupts in praise to God. When he says, I'm finally putting an end to all sin. I'm putting an end to all evil, to all corruption. What is the chorus in heaven? But worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. He alone has the authority to put an end to this corruption, to end it all. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10, we see that we will be spared from that wrath, from that judgment, and that is because we have been found righteous in him through faith. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. We have a different destiny because we have been recreated in him. We have been created anew, and we will not take part in the destruction of this creation. We will be a part of that preserved portion of creation. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 unites this praise of the creator God and the savior son. It says, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. That is the title deed to the earth. The breaking of the seals loosens Satan's grip, his claim on the earth. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Notice here the two things that qualify the Godhead to bring the wrath that he is bringing. He is the creator of all things. And he is the savior the reconciler of all things. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. God has every right to bring judgment in the flood. He has every right to save whom he will. He has every right to offer grace in the midst of judgment. But he doesn't need to. He does so out of love and out of mercy, by grace, through faith, on the basis of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so when God made this final statement to Noah, he had the only good response that anyone could have. Obedience. Faith. 
that spurs on good works. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Notice again, of all of these statements we get from God, we don't hear a word from Noah until after Noah sins in chapter 9. Noah was faithful, and God had given him everything he needed to trust that he would continue to be faithful to Noah. And so our takeaway this morning, God will take care of the problem of evil. He has every right to do so as the creator of all things, to destroy all things. But the righteous will escape eternal judgment by grace through faith on account of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And the faithful obedient will escape his temporal judgments. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that it gives us. We thank you that it spurs us on to continued obedience. We pray that we might be empowered by the Spirit to continue in faith and to continue in obedience so that we might be pleasing to you. We thank you for the salvation we have in the perfect sacrifice of Christ, and we glorify you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.